0: stories, fables, ghostly tales. What do you get when you combine murder, betrayal, double-crossing crooks, sassy women, whose guns do the talking, and the innocent smile that can slip its way into a man's heart? Well, what you get is the dervish, charming, and Rough Housing detective that is philip Marlowe. two episodes for you legends today and today is special because well it's my birthday mates thank you for the birthday wishes by email mates and thank you for supporting me in the way you listeners and patreon supporters do i'm going to keep this episode's intro light as i'm off to an event but didn't want to have you lovelies without an old-time radio episode to enjoy a special thank you to Maya, my Megastar, O Knight T-Titan, Sunfire Solstra, Luxurious Leza Bower, and Perfect Paige Kramer, of which are my team of White T-Warlords. And my awesome Earl Grey Enforcers, Joss Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Affili, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fasig, and Alia Arcane. Thank you all for supporting me. The format will return to normal this Wednesday. And Wednesday, mates, that'll be Let's Not Meet Stories this time around. And enjoy your double episode today. I'm off to eat some cake. Cheers, mates. And thanks for joining me. Enjoy.
1: When I
2: started, I thought one man was in trouble and three were trying to help him. But after I found two pounds of tobacco, two pieces of brass, and a boat without a pilot heading straight out to
3: sea, I knew they had all been in trouble, and all had taken the hard way out. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Barlow, we bring you tonight's exciting story The Hard Way Out. <laughs>
2: Killed the shank of the afternoon in a Hollywood department store, trying for the fifth consecutive year to select something unique in a personalized Christmas card. A bright eyed sales girl finally suggested, in desperation, a smoking 38, spelling out Noel in delicate wisps of white curling smoke. Well, I gave up, settled for a reissue of last year's unoriginal message. An hour later, I was driving out towards Sepulveda, and my new client, August Quick. And I was glad to be away from the free holiday crowds and back to work. When I pulled up in front of the factory building, uh, an immodest sign told me the man I was to meet inside was president and co-founder of Quig and Slater, manufacturers of nothing but the best in construction materials.
4: Come in, come in. i you in a minute. I'm on the floor. Listen, August speak does not change his policy overnight Slater. Not after 25 years. You should know that, you of all people. Never mind the excuses, Slater. Those you always have, and they make me sick. Partnership <coughs> ship trouble, Mr. Quig? Hmm? Oh, no, my partner is dead now ten years. That was his son, Keith Slater. But he has nothing to say here. His father left it that way. Well, sit down, Mr. Marlowe, please. Slater is not what I want to talk to you about. All right, Mr. Quigg. who is the man, and what's his problem? My general manager, Frank Emery. No, He has embezzled $60,000 of this company's money in the last year.
2: Hmm. And isn't this a great time for you to climb the nearest rooftop and scream copper?
4: No, because I want to save Frank Emery, not condemn him. Why? What's so special about a general manager who keeps dipping itchy fingers into the till, Mr. Marlowe, Frank Emery has worked for me for seven years. And in that time, he has climbed from shop worker to plant foreman to general manager. And that is something which took me 15 years. Which proves what? That Frank can one day go right to the top. Here, to my job. The yeah. honest way. And that is just the part he was on until a year ago when he got married. Oh. And he started to fill his pockets with company lettuce before he'd even gotten rid of the rice, is that it? Yes. But don't lead to any conclusions, Mr. Marlowe. Because his wife, Sheila, is a very sweet woman. Everybody knows that. And if anything, she should be a good influence. Mm-hmm. Mr. Quigg, what's Frank Emery's salary? 175 a week. Oh. When did you last see him? This afternoon, about 2 o'clock. I called him in here. But I didn't say anything about the shortage. We just thought. I asked him if he thought he needed a vacation. He only sought. He said he'd be all right in a little while. Then he left. But when he got back to his desk, he only stopped there long enough to pick up his hat. That was three hours ago. You called his house since? Hmm, Twice, but I got no answer. Here's the number, Marlowe, and the address. Mm -hmm. Now we better stop talking, start moving. I must know what Frank Emery plans to do. Here, yeah, this is my private number. So oh. Plant will close in half an hour, but I'll be
2: here working late. Okay. But before I get going, Mr. Quake, one more question. Just so all this will make some sense to me. Were you ever in a jam like this yourself? A long time ago,
4: maybe. And you know what it's like to be in Emory's shoes? <laughs> You're a pretty alert fellow, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> I do seem to remember a rich man who once kept me out of a lot of trouble. But the details aren't very clear anymore, so. Good night, and good luck.
1: Hello?
2: Mr. Frank Emery,
4: please.
1: I'm sorry, he's not in. Is this Philip Marlowe?
4: Yeah, that's right. That should make you Sheila Emery, huh?
1: Yes, I just finished speaking to August Quigg at the plant, Mr. Marlowe. He told me about you. And about Frank.
4: Take it
2: easy, Mrs. Emery crying isn't going to help Frank any. He?
1: Yes, I know. But how can I help Frank? What can I do?
2: I'm not sure. But look, can you meet me right away? I'm at the Golden Crown. It's a cocktail lounge on Santa Monica Boulevard near Bradley.
1: Yes, of course, Mr. Morrow. I'll be there as soon as possible. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly 34 minutes later, a two-toned, sleek convertible about the size of a Pullman car glided to a stop in front of the Golden Crown. The loveliness behind the wheel was wearing a hundred-dollar hand-knit dress that just wouldn't let go. I knew it couldn't be Sheila Emery, but it was. She was a tall, luscious blonde with blue-gray eyes that were set wide apart in a face that any angel would have gladly traded his wings for. You well, know, five minutes later, we were seated inside of the quiet corner booth.
1: But only two weeks ago, everything was perfect, Mr. Marlowe. Frank didn't seem to have a care in the world. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, he changed. He became quiet, almost morose.
2: You never suspected that he was stealing from Quake? Of
1: course not. And I still think there's some explanation, something we don't know about.
2: Maybe. But from where I sit, it looks like you two have been keeping up with the Vanderbilts instead of the Joneses. It always danced the bank account.
1: Just what do you mean by that, Mr. Marlowe?
2: Exhibit A, that knit one pearl two number you're wearing.
1: What?
2: Exhibit B, that splash of automobile you drove up in.
1: But Frank said we could afford those things. I know, because I was worried when we bought the boat.
2: what boat?
1: Carefree, it's a 30-foot sailboat. We dock it near our cottage, just beyond Santa Monica.
2: Hey, wait a minute. A sailboat, a cottage at the beach, that car? Just how far do you think 175 bucks will stretch these days?
1: What do you mean? Frank makes twice that, plus bonuses.
2: Not unless he has a very fancy paper route on the side. Because 175, period, is the figure that Quig quoted to me an hour ago.
1: Oh, no. no. I can't believe that. Frank wouldn't lie to me that way.
2: Yeah, some guys do funny things when they're too much in love. Oh, now, look, tears take time, honey. How about holding him back long enough to give me some dope? that will put me on Frank's trail, huh? I mean names and numbers, his clubs, his friends, anything that'll give me a line.
1: Yes, of course. But all that information is in is, is in his address book at home.
2: All right, homes are next up. Uh, just between us, Sheila, what are the chances that Frank has an extracurricular interest on a back street somewhere?
1: Another woman? Oh no, I'm sure that's not the way things are. Frank loves me very much.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Believe me, if he doesn't, we're not looking for an embezzler. We're after a maniac. Come on, let's get out of here. When we left the Golden Crown, Sheila was still crying and in no shape to drive. So after parking my coupe in a nearby lot, we floated out to the Emily Place in Brentwood in a 2 tone Nash, which did everything at the push of a button except dry a girl's tears. Sheila pulled herself together long enough to give me a handful of addresses that might possibly lead to Frank Emery. But just as I was about to leave, I noticed a single phone number scribbled in pencil on the edge of a desk wire. It was Crenshaw 22131. And since Sheila couldn't explain it, I wrote it down on a slip of paper and filed it in my pocket and left. But once outside, I remembered that my car was still on Santa Monica Boulevard at the Golden Crown. So I started back to the house to call a cab. I stopped suddenly at the sound of somebody in the shadows alongside the house. When I moved toward the noise, a man darted out between two trees, and I went after him.
5: <clears throat> Get your hands off my so we can play another round of hide and
2: <laughs> No dice, brother. I'm getting too old for it. Now, who are you? What are you doing around the Emory place? Come on, let's have it. Say, wait a minute. Aren't you...
5: Aren't you Marlowe? The man August Quig hired? That's right. You still haven't answered my question. Oh, no, but I will now that I know who you are. I'm Quig, Keith Slater. Surely dear Quig must have told you of me, the wastrel son of his late partner. He did, but you're still parrying, Slater. Why were you hiding behind those trees? Correction, Marlowe, I wasn't hiding. I was waiting for Frank Emery. All right, we won't argue terms. Why were you waiting? Because I wanted to get hold of Emery and help him before he goes too far. You see, Marlowe, he came back to the office after you left. What? Did he talk to Quig? No, the place had just closed, and the old man was out for dinner. Did you talk to Emory? Yes, and it wasn't much fun. The poor fellow's just about out of his mind, Milo. I raved on for an hour and a half about how unfair Quig was. Said he knew that I was the one who'd get to run Quig and Slater after the old man died. I don't follow that. When did you become the fair-haired boy around there? I'm hardly that. But I do own a quarter of the plant, unless, of course, Quig fired me one day. Those are the terms of my father's will. But Quig won't fire you, is that it? He wouldn't think of it. After all, that would keep my dear father from resting easy in his grave. Okay, okay, let's skip it. Exactly what did Frank Emery tell you, Slater? He said that August Quig was a two-faced liar and that he'd settle with him in his own way. I told Quig that when he got back from dinner. I also reminded him that Frank had a key to the office.
2: That didn't face Quig, did it?
5: No, he said he never worries twice. If Emery walked in on him, he'd think about what to do about it then. I tell you, Marlowe, we've got to get hold of Frank Emery and stop him before it's too late. <laughs>
3: In just a moment, back to the adventures of Philobono. But first, just one hour from now, over most of these same CBS network stations, Eve Arden will be midway through her regular Sunday night role of Our Miss Brooks, America's most charming and most highly unusual school teacher. You've seen Eve Arden make her hilarious way through many a Hollywood movie. Now you can hear her every Sunday night as Our Miss Brooks. Just a little later, over most of these same CBS network stations. And now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story The Hard Way (laughs) Out.
2: On Cahuenga, with my finger in the dial of the telephone, checking the names and places that Sheila Emery had given me. Two nightclubs, three hotels, and five friends later, I'd run through the list without a single kosher lead. Sitting there thinking of all the places a guy could disappear to, I, I reached into my pocket for a lifesaver and
4: found something else.
2: A slip of paper that read Crenshaw 22131, the number I'd seen on the desk blotter at Emery's place. <laughs> So, with nothing more to lose than another millimeter off the tip of
4: my index finger, I went back to dialing.
1: Pipe
4: and tobacco shop, Sam Newton talking. Newton's what? Pipe and tobacco shop, what can I do for you? Not a thing, old timer, my mistake. Pipe and tobacco shop.
2: (laughs) Marlo speaking.
1: Sheila Emery, Marlowe. I think I know where Frank is. You do? Yes, at our cottage at the beach. It's closed up, but I was just going through some things in my desk when I discovered that the keys to the place were gone. And I clearly remember seeing them only yesterday. What's the exact
2: location of that cottage?
1: It's two miles north of Santa Monica and down on the beach, directly behind a large white frame house on the Pacific Coast Highway, number 1221. You can't miss it. 1221.
2: Okay,
5: I'm leaving right now, and I'll call you as soon as I can, so try not to worry.
2: Somehow or other, I made it straight out along Sunset to the beach and then north as far as the large white frame house without being tagged for low flying by any of the boys in blue. When I got down to the cottage on the beach, I found it deserted and boarded up like opening night at an unlicensed peep show in Boston. Except for a couple of stray gulls who probably had insomnia, I was all alone. But the gregarious streak in me didn't suffer very long because a minute later I had an unannounced visitor... It was a nasty caliber forty-five automatic. And the man on the other end who gripped the handle like he knew what he was doing was none other than the general manager of Quiggin Slater, Mr. Frank Emery. Mind telling me who you are and what you want here? Well, a name which probably doesn't matter, Mr. Emery, is Philip Marlowe. But my business with you is something else. I'm working for your boss, August Quig, and Believe it or not, he wants to help That's me. can not
5: lie, Marlowe. Nobody wants to help me, and you know that. This is a smart trick, but it won't work. It can't work. And I'll tell you why. When the police do get to me, Marlowe, they won't find anything but a corpse. Is that clear?
2: Suicide. Don't be a fool. What about your
3: wife?
5: Marlowe, that's why I took the 60,000 bucks. To say your breath. Unless you're interested in joining me, do exactly as I say. Now here. Pick up these keys and open that door. Go on. Now, throw the keys back gently. Please, Emily, listen to me. No. I've listened to too many people already. Now it's my turn to talk. Well, all I'm going to say is goodbye in my own way. I don't know what you're doing, Emery. Stop a minute. Think. This isn't the time to think, Marlow. This is the time to
2: act. Now, get in. Emery backed me into the, the cottage, stepped outside and pulled the door shut. I waited a moment until I heard his car start. Then I tried the door. I knew I was wasting my time. Emery had run a piece of pipe through the handle and Gargantua himself couldn't have opened it from the inside. It took me ten minutes to kick enough boards off one of the windows to wiggle out and another five to get to a phone. When I told Sheila that her husband was on her way home in a very desperate frame of mind, she promised to hold him at all costs until I could get there. Twenty minutes later, I was in Sheila's house on Bundy Drive.
1: Marlow, what happened? Where's your husband? I don't know. He hasn't been here.
2: Oh, fine. After
1: you called me, I waited, but he didn't come back. Marlowe, what did you mean when you said Frank was
2: desperate? I'm afraid Frank intends to kill himself.
1: Kill himself? Oh, no, he can't. Now,
2: we still may be able to stop him. When he left the beach house, he was heading someplace to say goodbye. I figured for sure that meant you, but wherever he was going, he didn't want to be followed. He locked me in and... The gun! me. smoke! Where's your phone? Right over there. Oh.
1: Uh, what about a gun? Does Frank have one? Yeah, yeah.
2: Forty-five. Didn't he come here to make his last goodbyes. and only leaves all this place.
1: You know what you're saying. Come on,
2: answer that phone. No answer on Quigg's private wire.
1: You're accusing Frank of murder. He hates Mr. Quigg, yes, but I know he couldn't kill him. He couldn't. Now, you
2: listen to me. Your husband's cornered and he's decided to blast his way out of a hopeless situation. I'm going to Quigg's office. If Frank comes back, try to keep him here. Don't try too hard because it might be dangerous now, even for you. (laughs) I drove down Sepulveda to the black, hulking plant of Quig and Slater, pulled over, parked, and walked up the alley toward the side entrance. Through a barred window, I saw the feeble nightlight glow in the outer office. Otherwise, the place was dark. When I got to the door, I stopped.
1: A diamond-shaped key stuck out of the lock, and the heavy door was ajar. I eased it open and listened. Nothing. <laughs> I pulled the key out of the lock and dropped it in my pocket. And I went inside and switched on the lights.
2: Oh, I found him on the floor next to the desk in his private office. He'd been shot in the chest, point blank with a forty five, Which meant that even before he fell, August Quig was dead. The room was untouched. Quig's key case lay in the pestle tray on his desk. I snapped it open and saw what I expected. His diamond-shaped key. I switched off the lights and started out. I heard heels clicking up the hallway. I backed up against the wall and waited. It was Keith Slater. He hesitated in the open door, a startled look on his face.
1: Good Lord. Quick.
2: Hello, Slater. Who is it? Marlowe. I wouldn't touch anything if I were you. The police will want to see it just as it is. Marlowe, he's
5: been murdered. I had no idea Frank would go this far.
2: Yeah, he's full of surprises tonight. Are you sure he's not carrying any grudges against you?
5: Frank and I are old friends. That old man in there was different. He wasn't human. He was a machine, a rock crusher with a concrete heart. Only sorry it was Frank who did that to him because he'll never be able to get away with it.
2: He doesn't intend to.
5: Plans to commit suicide any minute now. now he's on these straight, Slater. How does he feel about
2: his wife? Is he jealous? Jealous? Why? Uh, Marlow, you don't think that he might kill Sheila? I'm going to call her right away. Wait a minute. If Frank is there, a phone call would only hurry things. Come on, let's go.
5: Mm-hmm. I like the looks of this, Marlowe.
1: Neither do I. Sheila? Frank? Anybody home?
5: They're not here. Neither one of them. Well, if they are, they're not talking. Oh, you've got a macabre sense of humor. Nobody's him. laughing, brother. Look, you check
2: upstairs. I'll see what I can find down here. For once, I hope it's nothing. I gave the ground floor a fast run-through. It was neat and tidy from copper-potted ivy on the dining room, wall of the sunbeam toastmaster on the breakfast tray. The only thing out of place was a bottle of scotch near the kitchen sink and lipstick on the glass beside it, it said Sheila. I was back in the living room before I found out why she had needed that bracelet. Propped against a bowl of violets on the coffee table with two notes pinned together. The top one was for me and Sheila. It said, Marlowe, I just found this note from Frank. I'm sure he means that he's going out in our boat the carefree. I've got to stop him, Sheila. I turned to Frank's note and was waiting at his that Came down the stairs. Nothing
5: unusual up there, Milo, did you? What's that? Uh, what have you found? Frank's suicide note. He asked Sheila to forgive him and forget him.
2: Here, read it yourself. I'm gonna call the
4: police. Sure means it is going out Wrong. I, I thought you were gonna call the police. I was. But I noticed
2: this phone number here on the desk blotter again. It's a tobacco dealer. Slater,
4: I've got a very wacky idea. I'm going to give it a try.
1: Hello? Newton Tobacco Shop? Yes, but quick.
4: closed. It's after midnight, you know.
1: Yeah, I know. This
2: is the police, Mr. Newton. We want some information.
4: Police? What, what did you volunteer?
2: Take it hey, easy. Do you have a customer named Emery? Frank Emery? Yes.
4: He was in late this afternoon. What'd he buy? Tobacco. A special blend I make up for. I see. How much of it did he get? Oh, my. Let me think
1: now. Two
4: pounds. If that's right, two pounds, I'm sure of it. man
2: could lay quite a smoke screen with two pounds of tobacco, couldn't he? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mr. Newton. You've been a big help. (laughs) What's the matter, Slater? You look troubled. Are you thinking the same thing I am? I don't know what you're thinking, Milo. This... It's mighty weird for a guy who's planning suicide to go buy himself two pounds of tobacco a few hours before he blows his brains out. Put it succinctly, pal, and thinking that Frank Emery's suicide's a big, fat pony.
1: This is Lieutenant Ibarra. Marlo
2: Ibarra. Catching you at this hour is the best break I've had all night.
1: How so? What's up, Marlo? Guy's
2: been murdered, and this killer, one Frank Emery, is getting away by boat. Can you sell a harbor patrol on running him down for me? It's his own, a sailboat called the Carefree. A 30-footer with an auxiliary motor. He'll be out of ways off Topanga Canyon. Well, that can be arranged, but where I find you, I'll need some particulars. I'm going to his beach place. It's in a little cove, two miles above Santa Monica. There's a pier and a boathouse a couple of hundred yards beyond.
1: Okay, Marla, we'll find it. Now listen, don't get your feet wet. Wait till we get there.
2: The Emory Beach House was deserted and dark. So Slater and I went out to the boathouse, which was dark, too. That's where we found Sheila lying on the planks, sobbing out the end of a long, hard cry. The Slater ran to her and lifted her to her feet.
1: <laughs> oh, Sheila. Sheila, what happened? Where's Frank? Oh, please. I was too late. I saw him leave. He waved to me and called goodbye. But I begged him to come back, but no, oh, he never will.
2: Don't be too sure of that, honey.
1: What do you mean, Marl?
2: Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That boat's coming in is probably Ibarra.
1: Yeah, here we are. I got another boat out looking
2: for the cab free, so I came directly here. Uh, who's this? Uh, Mrs. Emery, Mr. Slater, Lieutenant Ibarra. How do you do? Uh, well, Marlow, what's it all about? Well, then Bezler killed his boss, set up a strong case of suicide, and at the moment is pulling a very fast switch. You mean he's not
5: really checking out? How do you figure?
2: He bought two pounds of his favorite pipe tobacco today. What's that? Wait, well, that's interesting, Bill, but suicide's a peculiar people. Bill. Okay, but I'll bet you my Sea Scout insignia against a dead jellyfish that he's got a small boat aboard. And that he's going to get off the carefree and row to shore. How about it, Mrs. Emery? Is there a small
1: boat? There's a rubber life raft in one of the locks. That'll do it. It's all he needs.
5: Senator Barra? Yes, Mooney? What is it? Just got a call on the radio from the other boat. They've spotted the carefree running without light
4: southwest about two and a half miles offshore. He's holding a steady course, but there's nobody at the wheel. Seems to be abandoned.
2: Well, tell him to stand by. leave her alone. We'll be right out. Well, Marlowe, we'll
5: know in a minute. Let's go, folks. Get aboard.
2: A power patrol cutter slides through the black swells with the easy grace of a head waiter after a $10 tip. And all the way out, it looked as though Marlowe was going to be the bright boy of the evening. And we pulled alongside the carefree and made her fast and boarded her. It still looked that way. It looked great. Right up to the point when Ibarra peered through the porthole in the closed cabin, jerked the door open, and went inside. <laughs> After that, it didn't look so good.
1: Marlowe, oh, come here. Is this Frank
2: Emory? Yeah. Yeah, that's him, Ibarra. He's been shot over the heart from
5: up close with a forty five. undoubtedly the one he still has gripped in his hand there.
1: Lieutenant
5: Ebarra. Use it, Yeah, you better not come in, Mrs. Emery.
2: Your husband has killed himself. He walked back to the stern and sat down. Barrow was going through his grim routine inside, and I felt lousy. I stared down vacantly at my feet and only gradually became aware of the little brass
1: cylinder that danced across the deck with every roll of the boat. I picked it up. It was an ejected cartridge from a forty-five.
2: had found an empty forty five cartridge. All at once things began
3: to take shape for me. He fired! He fired Hold everything. I was right. Emery didn't commit suicide after all. Phil, the man's body's right here, with the gun in his hand. I know, I know, but he was murdered. Now look, I found this out on deck and the door to this cabin was closed, you remember? When a man is shot with a forty-five, he drops. He doesn't walk in, close the door, and then fall. Well, did Emory have any keys? Not.
2: Yes, these are his. They're in the ignition by the wheel. Sure, sure. Look, look. This diamond-shaped one.
5: It matches one I've got in my pocket.
2: Come on out on deck, me bar, and watch closely.
5: Hey Slater. Slater, can I see your key to the side door of the factory? Why, certainly, Milo. It's right here in my pocket. Well,
2: it's not in your pocket because it's here in my hand, Slater. You were so excited when you shot Quig, you ran off and left the sticking in the lock. No. And here's one for you, Mrs. Emory. While the carefree was still tied up at the dock, you stood right here, surprised your husband in the cabin door, and shot him. This little cartridge was ejected back to the stern. But you forgot about that, because after you shoved him inside and put the gun in his hand, you
3: closed the door. Then you started the motor, locked the wheel, and cut the boat loose.
1: I don't know what you're talking about. Look out, get the your gun.
3: That was
5: nice, Ibarra. Marlo, I wouldn't have believed this. Don't lose your place because you'll have to go over it all again. Don't worry, I won't. You see, it's sort of like an equation.
2: Two pounds of tobacco and two pieces of brass added up to two bodies and two murderers. Well, Marlo, it beats me. That Mrs. Emery seemed to be nothing but sweet, soft, and stay-at-home nights. Yeah. And yes, she pulled one of the richest double crosses, I reckon. He borrowed, she let her husband steal a fortune for her and even helped him plan a fake suicide to get away. <laughs> then she turned around and used this plan, only no fake this time, to kill him. So she'd be free to marry Slater. But she didn't want Slater without the money, right? Right. As long as August Quick lives, Slater could never be sure of his income. So Slater killed him and they hung that on Frank Emery, too. Mm-hmm. And they worked a fast routine and passed the detective right through the middle of it all. Huh? While Slater killed Quig, I was with Sheila.
5: Then Slater took me over while she killed Frank. They make a great team in a shell game, Waldo. Yeah. But you did all right. Well, see you tomorrow, the report, you know. Good night, Phil.
2: sat alone on a pier for a long time. I watched the waves come in and gradually my mind got untangled in the treachery and violence it had been wrapped up in all night. And the lady turned out to be the tiger. And then as my thoughts ploughed back through the whole mess of the afternoon when I'd been shopping for Christmas cards, I made up my mind to cancel my order and have an entirely new set printed up. They say it pays to advertise and if that's true, right across the top of my new cards and big block letters, I'm going to have the words, Goodwill Toward Men. Who knows? Maybe it'll help. Anyway, I hope so. got the crisp $50 bill in advance, I figured my client had a heart of gold. But after I was beat up, double-crossed, and shot at, I realized just how hard a heart of gold can be.
3: On the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe.
2: I had spent the day trying to decide how to spend the day and finally convinced myself Sunday afternoon was a good time to catch up on neglected bookkeeping. I only got as far as the office door because a special delivery letter was stuck in the mail slot. I ripped it open and watched a crisp $50 bill flutter to the floor. Spinning it down with my toe, I turned to the letter which was dated Saturday. Dear Mr. Marlowe, kindly investigate the party who lives at 1903 North Ogden Street to find out if his name is really Elliot Perdue and what his occupation is. Then please come to my residence at 5 tomorrow, Sunday. I live at the home of a friend, Arthur Stewart, 33 Lemonwood Drive in Bel Air. I sincerely hope that fifteen dollars will be a sufficient retainer. Truly yours, Helen Asher. Oh. Judging from the tone of her letter, it was obvious that Helen Asher didn't hire private detectives very often. Nevertheless, I glanced at my watch, which said I had to work very fast, and I headed for 1903 North Ogden. Turned out to be a small house near Selma Street. I got out of my car and walked up to the door. Good afternoon, sir. You the resident here? That's right. What do you want? I represent the Dr. Potter of public opinion. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Sorry, Sorry but I don't have any opinions. To oh, even the opinions of a man with no opinions are important to it. Now, let's just let me step inside in. here and get out my notebook. There we are. All right, but make it fast. Right. Now, what is your occupation? I'm an investment broker. Okay. With which firm? I'm, uh, independent. I see. And what is your name, sir? What do you need my name for? Well, for my personal records, in case I have to come back. Elliot Perdue. Uh-huh. And do you have any hobbies other than horse racing? What's... What do you mean? Those dope sheets and racing forms there on your desk. I'm quite an admirer of horse flesh myself. <laughs> You're quite a character, too, aren't you? Working on Sunday and all? Well, you know how public opinion is. It goes right on rain, shine, or Sunday. Excuse me a moment. Oh, by the way, uh, what's your name? Marlow. Philip Marlow. Hey, Mr. Marlowe. Stand still, because I'm not kidding about this gun. Now, beat it back to whoever hired you and tell them they're being very clumsy about a very delicate situation. One more move like this, and they won't get another chance. I knew Purdue meant business, so I left without an argument. Well, at least I had a repeat on the name, Elliot Purdue, and the occupation of Brookie to cross at Helen Asher when I met her at 5 o'clock. In Bel Air, I eventually found 33 Lemonwood Drive. 200 yards of palm trees stood at rigid attention while I drove through the gate up to the house. When the butler opened the door, he stared at me like my hat was on fire. Uh Yes, sir. Uh, did you did you wish something? Yes. Yeah, I'd like to see Mrs. Asher, please. Mrs. Asher.
4: Oh, good heavens, uh, Mr. Stewart! What's the matter, Robert? So, oh, it's... why is this? I'm
2: Philip Marlowe, Mr. Stewart, a private detective. I have an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Is she at home? Oh, Mr. Marlowe, perhaps you can help. I don't know what to do. It's such a terrible thing. What's happened? Upstairs, not five minutes ago, Mrs. Asher shot herself. Shot herself. Please, if you'd come up with me. Yeah, sure. I'm certainly grateful for your help, Mr. Marlowe. This is her room. She's in here. There. Yeah. He's dead. All right. Shot herself and left up. Whose gun is that, Mr. Steele? It's mine. I kept it in the desk downstairs. Did you find her? No, Roberts did. I was out in the hot house working with my orchids. You see, I've been out of town. I just came in this morning on the Super Chief from Chicago. I wasn't expected back until Wednesday. Yeah, if I look, Mr. Stewart, do you mind telling me how well you knew Mrs. Asher? Oh, very well indeed. Ever since the accident three years ago, she lived in my house under my care. The accident? Yes, that's how she got those uh, scars on her cheek and neck. As you can see, my hands were burned at the same time. Do you mind telling me about it? Well, I was living in Canada at the time. One day, my wife Florence and I went to a camp near Quebec, and we met Helen Asher our first day there. She was a pathetic, lonely woman, a widow. Oh. And that very night while she was visiting us, the oil stove in our cabin exploded. Oh. Florence, my wife, was killed. Mrs. Asher was severely burned. It was ghastly. I can imagine. Mrs. Asher had no one, so I thought the least I could do would be to care for her, since I knew the accident had been caused by sheer carelessness on my part. You took over full responsibility for her? Yes, I did everything I could think of, but she never quite got over the shock of that night. Now, how (laughs) this? It's horrible. Have you notified the police yet? Uh, No, You better do it right now. Uh, Yes, I'll go right downstairs and call. The dead woman on the floor had been beautiful once. No doubt about it. This is my client. And a certain $50 bill was burning a hole in my pocket. I wandered over to a writing table, and as I looked down, I noticed that the Sunday sheet had been torn off the memo pad. It bothered me. Tomorrow should mean nothing to a suicide, yet Mrs. Asher's memo pad showed Monday already. The sheet was blank, but on a hunch I tore it off and stuck it in my pocket. I was about to turn away when I saw a book of matches from the Conga Club. So I picked that up, too, and then I left. I drove around for some time, trying to figure things out. And I went down to police headquarters to see one lieutenant, E. Burrow. It's suicide, as far as we're concerned, Marlowe. Everything checks. Mrs. Asher was the sponsor, and she killed herself. She didn't leave a suicide letter, but they don't always. I do get in on it. You well, know, she paid me 50 bucks in advance to air out a small-time bookie or worse named Elliot Perdue. Incidentally, what's the background on Officer Stewart? Oh, he's a big money fashion designer. Started his business on his wife's insurance. She died in an accident in Canada. He did a lot for Mrs. Asher because he felt responsible. Yeah, yeah, I know all that. But was she left-handed? Did Stuart come in on the super chief this morning and was it the butler that found the body? That's right. We checked it all. And look, Phil, do you have any good reason to think this isn't suicide? No, no, not really. It's just that $50 in advance that bothers me, I guess. But by the way, I've got a piece of paper I'd like the boy and the lab to run a test on, okay? Sure, Casey will fix you up. Now, um, Marlon, I figure suicide now, but I can always change my mind. I went down the hall to the police laboratory and handed the blank page of the memo pad to Casey. Ten minutes later, he explained that the impression showed a left-handed person had written a number, Bradshaw 7. 7 Eleven with a wide point fountain pen. Probably on the page just above the one I'd given him. And I thanked him, dropped four bits in the Christmas fund bottle, and found the phone. I dialed Bradshaw seven seven eleven and waited. Hello? Hello? Who's this? The
6: man in the moon. Come out and see me some other
2: time. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I like your voice. And besides, seven seven eleven is a very lucky number. Uh huh. Three passes
1: in a row, but
6: don't let it fool you, Jack. The answer is no dice. Goodbye. Yeah. Well.
2: I gathered she was in no mood for playing, so I decided to be strictly business and dialed again. Hmm. There was no answer. I let it ring for some time, but Miss golden voice obviously wasn't taking any more anonymous calls. I'd left only the long shot, the book of matches I'd found on Mrs. Asher's desk. The conga club was on the Sunset Strip, so I drove out there, found a parking space on a side street nearby, and went in. I didn't know exactly where I was looking for, so I paid a buck ten for a scotch and soda worth 40 cents, just to help pass the time. Amber's spotlight was glistening down on a set of sequined contours that would have melted the ice age down to a
6: fortnight. By my
2: And she was seen. it.
6: For wherever my man is, I am here.
1: Forever. More.
2: I knew it was Benita, the convict featured songstress, and I knew something else too. There was no mistaking that voice. She was the girl with the lucky phone number. I wrote her a note, called a waiter to the table to deliver it and sat back to watch her as she glided over and sidled into a chair opposite me.
6: It was your penmanship that intrigued me, Mr. Miller.
2: It was your voice and so forth, mostly the so forth, that got me, Bernita. Uh,
6: would you care to decipher the Sanskrit you called a note? The waiter said you wrote it. Sure.
2: It says important business. Uh,
6: that's an idiom. <laughs> if you wanted to talk, uh, turkey, how would you translate it?
2: Do you know a woman named Helen Asher?
6: Not that I remember, why?
2: Your phone number showed up in a memo pad. How do you account
6: for that? How should I know? Maybe she intended to call me up. Look, you're quite a handsome man, Mr. Marlowe. But you look silly with your nose bent. Why do you keep sticking it into other people's business?
2: Because besides being paid for it, it sometimes leads to meeting interesting and beautiful people. Pleasant company included. What do you want? Mrs. Asher killed herself tonight.
6: Mrs. Asher's dead? Yeah, yeah.
2: And considering you said you didn't know her, you looked very right to out
6: about it. All right. you win. But let's not talk about it here. Finish your drink while I get out of this costume. Then meet me outside by the front door in ten minutes.
2: When she headed to the back of the club, I headed to the front. I got out the door and down to my car just in time to see her leave by the stage entrance. She jumped into a yellow convertible, ripped down Sunset Boulevard, turned down to Doheny, and scraped to a halt in front of the Regent Apartments. At the door, a tall, sunburned man popped up from somewhere and intercepted her. It was Elliot Perdue. A short but hot argument took place, and apparently Perdue won, because they went in together. I found the name Benita Malone over the mailbox of number five, and got to her apartment door just as the second round started.
6: No, I haven't changed my mind, Elliot.
2: I've been doing a little research since you threw me over,
6: Benita. I've got you and your precious plans right here in the palm of my hand. What are you talking about? This. This little heart-shirt locket on this little golden chain. Let me see no, that. No, no, no. not showing this trinket until just the right moment. Listen, Elliot. I don't know what's brewing in that slimy brain of yours. But this if you try to monkey with my life again, so help me out till you night. not... Get out! Benita... Would you be
2: interested if I told you that I know Mrs. Asher's secret?
6: And would you be interested if I told you that Mrs. Asher killed us out tonight? That slows you down, doesn't it, Dry Boy?
2: Yeah, but it doesn't stop me, beautiful. I'll be seeing you before you know it. I ducked into an alcove and heard Benita slam the door and produce coattails as he left. <laughs> So now I knew that you, a locket, and Benita Malone added up some way. For a bullet in the head for a scarred woman with a secret. I went back to my car and drove out to Stewart's house in Bel Air. When you were here before, Marlowe, I was so upset I hardly realized you were a private detective. Now, you had an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Had uh, she hired
6: you? Yes,
2: to investigate someone, but she didn't live long enough to give me the details. what sort of trouble could she have been into if needed a private detective? I don't know. But perhaps you can help me find out by answering a few questions. Anything. Anything at all, Mr. Marlowe. Does the name Elliot Perdue mean anything to you, Mr. Stewart? Elliot Perdue? No, I'm afraid not. How about uh, Benita Malone? I've never heard of her. Do you know anything about a heart-shaped locket on a gold chain? A locket? A gold locket? Yeah. Mrs. Asher had a heart-shaped gold locket. Where'd she keep it? Upstairs in her jewelry box, I should have mentioned. Come on, let's have a look. Yeah? Yeah. Right up these stairs, here. Yeah. This is her room, Marlowe. I know. I was here once before. Why? It's it, it not here. It's not on her dressing table. Her, her jewelry box, it's gone, Marlowe. You think that... She... Elliot Perdue has it. I can't understand. That's the locket like? What's inside it? Just a picture. It was valued by Mrs. Dasher because it was the only one she kept of herself the way she looked before the accident. Now, why would anyone else want that? I don't know. When we get that locket, we'll get a lot of answers along with it. Now I was more convinced than ever that Elliot Purdue, Benita, and the late Mrs. Asher's secret were all dangling from the same chain that supported the gold locket. I said goodnight to Arthur Stewart and started back for Hollywood. But moments later, I changed my mind and abruptly swung onto a shadowed side road and parked lights out. It had suddenly occurred to me that a gallivanting Mr. Purdue might call on Stewart. If so, I wanted to be on hand. Forty minutes later, I was about to call off the cloak and dagger routine when I heard the sound of a powerful motor roaring out of Stewart's driveway. I looked up just in time to see a long black man whip by with Stewart at the wheel. From the speed of the car, I was certainly wasn't going out for the morning papers. Decided to go back to the house and question the butler while I could have him to my side. Oh, why, no, Mr. Marlowe. I haven't any idea where Mr. Stewart went. I only know that he had a telephone call after which he dashed out of the house highly upset. Well, maybe some sick friend needed sitting up with, huh? But tell me, Roberts, did you ever hear of a man named Elliot Perdue? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, He called on Mr. Dasher here once or twice while Mr. Stewart was away on business. When did you last see this Mr. Perdue, Roberts? Uh, Yesterday morning, sir, about 10 o'clock. Hmm. One thing more. Did you ever see Mrs. Asher wearing a gold locket, a heart shaped one? Oh, quite often, sir. As a matter of fact, she asked me about it just yesterday morning, shortly after Mr. Perdue left. She couldn't locate it any place. A singular coincidence, huh? Oh, by the way, what do you know about a singer named Benita? Benita? I've never heard of her, sir. Are you sure she's never been out here as Mr. Stewart's guest? Why, I'm positive, sir. Mr. Stewart never has any ladies out here of any kind. How? No? Doesn't that strike you as being strange rabbit? After all, Mr. Stewart's a very eligible widower. Widower? Yes, Mr. Marlowe. But Philanderer? No. Good night, sir. As I drove back to Hollywood, I tried to figure out where Arthur Stewart had gone. But I had about as much to work with as Gypsy Rose Lee after a third encore. Now, after discounting Benita's place in the conga, there was only Elliot Perdue's house in North Arkansas. Fifteen minutes later, I walked up to it, but the place was as dark and as quiet as the inside of a coffin. I was about to turn back to my car when suddenly, I caught the reflection of a sliver of light bouncing off the glass in Mr. Perdue's living room. I found the back door lock, easy to block. A moment later, I stepped into the living
6: room. No! How, how did you know I was here? The steward told me. You're a liar. Arthur wouldn't. Arthur? Uh, I. Well, you see, Mr. Stewart and I. Oh, are no,
2: it's Mr. Stewart, huh? Wait a minute, there's someone outside. Who do? You... Put out your light. You I'll be you keep talking, saying, I'll be behind the drawers. Here okay. you but... Well, Benita. <laughs> what a waste of time, my dear.
6: While you've been here rearranging my socks, I've been talking to your boyfriend with the locket safely tucked away right here in my breast pocket. How clever of you. How absolutely ingenious. It's a bit late for nasty words between us, Benita, because possession of you was part of the bargain
2: I struck with Mr. Stewart. You see, we What are you staring at? My big blue eyes, Perthu, don't move, or I'll blast you. Don't do nothing. Oh. Get
4: the gun here.
6: Now you will place them
4: on.
6: Now the gentleman's breast pocket. Ah,
2: here it is, Benita. Safe and sound.
6: Which is just the way I want it, Phil. What?
2: My own gun.
6: Why, Why you beautiful the snake. The lock Marlowe. Come on, I get nervous with one of these things in my hand. Throw it here. Thank you. Now when I leave, Phil, don't come after me. Because I'd hate it till you pull a little hole. Good night, dear. Yeah.
2: Benita stepped out of that house. I solemnly swore I wouldn't trust another woman for the next hundred years. A groan from the body on the floor brought me back to 1948 and Elliot Perdue. I knew that he had seen the picture in the locket, so I went to work on him. Come on, Perdue, snap out of it. Come on. Huh? Oh, it's you, Marlo. Who'd you expect, Saint Peter? What was in the locket, Perdue? I don't remember. Maybe a call on Lieutenant Barrow will refresh your memory. Hi, Jarvis. Then we better start playing games again. We'll start with one called Slap Slap Perdue. No, no, let me alone, Marlo.
4: Get your hands
3: off.
2: Ah, uh, you're ready to start singing, huh? All we need now is the light lyrics. Oh, come on, Perdue, talk.
4: Stop it, stop it, I'll talk.
2: Good. Now, why did Mrs. Asher kill herself?
5: Because she had a good reason.
2: Like what? Uh, it's a long story.
5: Make it short. Okay, Marlo. Here goes.
2: Hello, Ibarra. There's a five-minute-old corpse lying in his living room at 1903 North Ogden. His name is Elliot Purdue. Free shot through a closed window. I was lucky. Any description of the killer? No, no. Now look, Ibarra, right now I'm going after a songbird named Benita Malone at the Regent Apartments on Doheny. Will you cover me there without sirens?
3: Sure, Marlo. I'll attend to it in person.
2: was only a healthy set take from Purdue's house to Benita's. When I got there, the place was dark and a car wasn't in sight. I decided to try the conga club. But as soon as I walked in, I began to worry because if Benita had wanted to get rid of that locket, she'd have had enough time to bury it at Forest Lawn. But I didn't know Benita. Because Miss Oomph herself was singing in the amber spotlight. And dangling from her soft white neck was the heart-shaped gold locket. I
6: love because he's wonderful Because he's just my baby.
2: When she caught my eyes, she smiled like a made a D And the moment she was through with her song, she headed back in my direction But before she got to me, I saw her give the high sign to an ape in a tuxedo he looked at her, and then across from my table, left the room. I watched Anita glide across the floor in my direction. She was distinctly a of beauty. Okay.
6: Well, Phil, what do you think of my
2: singing? I'm just crazy about it.
6: That and your jewelry, especially that locker. can we, Ellen? It was more or less handed down to me, generation to generation. That's an old uh, Spanish cut.
2: Yeah, thing. yeah, as I've been told. And I imagine tradition prohibits your parting with it, huh? That's
6: right. Unless, of course, someone mm. someone with oodles of money offers me lots of it in exchange. So naturally, I'd be obliged.
2: I don't think you'd feel obliged to your mother on her second Sunday in May. Besides, I don't have oodles of money.
6: You should have told me that earlier. To buy good luck.
2: Hey, wait a minute.
6: We couldn't do any business in a minute. And don't follow me if you want to stay pretty.
2: pivoted on a slight heel and took off for a dressing room and I knew that if I followed I was scheduled for a nasty tater tape with an apron a tuxedo. But I made the lower floor and saw that the long corridor to a room was empty I knew the setup. The ape would be on the other side of the door waiting. The still had my gun, so I got the nearest substitute for a blackjack, a full bottle of Paul Masson champagne. Then I walked noisily down the corridor as far as her door and knocked, turned and hog slowly kicked the door open and stood clear. It worked. The ape's hairy hand was wrapped around my gun and it came down in an arc that was never interrupted. And that left them all balance. The ace hit the floor and before Benita had a chance to close him mouth, I ripped the locket from my neck picked my gun up and ran. I didn't stop until I collapsed against the store window. Then I opened up the locket. Two minutes, out right I mean before I realized what was wrong with the picture. Then I knew. Arthur Stewart's home in Bel Air with my next stop. Thirty minutes later, I pulled up away from the place and parked. And keeping in the shadows, I approached the house, with only the library and an upstairs bedroom showed any light. The library had French windows. When I moved up close, I was startled by the side of a figure going through Stewart's desk. I stepped into the room and found it with my little friend, Benita. I've got my own gun again, Benita? You. Oh, doing a little
6: dusting, honey? Oh, don't be funny.
2: I'm not trying to. How is it you're not upstairs helping Stuart pack?
5: Because I've already finished packing Mr. Marlowe, and don't turn around. That was well done, Benita.
2: Oh, fine. Sucked in by a little decoy sprinkled with sequins. So,
5: mind the pose, Marlowe. Just toss your gun on the couch over there. Now. Yeah, that's better. You know, Marlowe, I can't say that I'm very sorry for you.
2: I only expect condolences from a character who murdered a woman this afternoon and a man this evening.
5: You killed Mr. Lasher? Yes, and that blackmailing scum for you as well. But both murders were be very necessary, Benita, even as Marlowe's here will be. Come over here, Benita, behind me.
6: Hurry, oh, right, Arthur, so let's get out
5: of here don't worry. and hurry. now, Mr. Marlowe, it's time for you.
6: Well, <laughs> thanks, Benita, you swing a beautiful bookend. You know, I had you figured all along. Well, no, don't mention it, dear. I heard the cops coming anyway. You sweet child.
2: We're well, in here,
6: he all of it. Oh, I figured he'd be out here when he didn't
2: show up at that Songbird place. Well, what's this? The little man on the floor with a large bump on his head is out Stewart, The man who killed Elliot Perdue to keep him from telling me the truth about Mrs. Asher. And the man who killed her this afternoon. So Mrs. Asher didn't commit suicide after all. No, but she wasn't murdered either. She died in that accident in Canada three years ago. What are you talking about? Well, the woman that Stewart killed here this afternoon wasn't Mrs. Asher. It was his wife, Mrs. Florence Stewart. You see, there must have been a mix-up in identifying the bodies of the two women at the time of the accident. Mm-hmm. Stewart and his wife had Mrs. Asher buried as Mrs. Stewart. And they collected the insurance. Neat, huh? Yeah. But what happened? It's simple. Stewart got bored with his scarred and unattractive wife, and he started running around with choice little numbers. Like Benita here. I'm
6: still honest. I didn't know a thing about this. Stuart told me that Mrs. Asher depended on him so heavily that she'd be crushed at his seeing another woman. But I didn't know she was his wife.
2: Marlow, how do you figure this all out? I'm a locket that belonged to the woman we knew as Mrs. Asher. It had a picture of Stuart and Mrs. Asher taken in dress clothes before she was scarred. Yet Stuart claimed that he and his wife had only met Mrs. Asher the day of the accident. And on a camping trip at that.
6: But, Phil, I saw the picture, too, and I didn't figure that out. That's
2: because you were too busy trying to figure just how much the locket was worth to Arthur Stewart or to anybody in cold cash. You were blinded by all the dollar signs in front of your eyes, baby.
6: My Phil, how can you say such things?
2: Now, Marlow, just so I don't toss and turn all night, tell me just why you were hired in the first place. Riley it goes something like this. When Purdue knew that he was losing Benita to Stewart, he decided to check up on the opposition. And he not only found out what he wanted to know, but he found out a lot of things, too, that he didn't want to know. Mrs. Stewart, the late Mrs. Asher, became suspicious of his questioning. And incidentally, of her husband. So she sent for me. Well, Marlow Stewart certainly had me fooled. I doped him out to be a very generous guy, a great benefactor who was doing the right thing for a lonely, unfortunate woman. Yeah. Looked like he had a heart of gold, all right. But a funny thing, he bought in the end it was this heart of gold, this locket here that got him. Mind if I keep it? Not at all. You had a tough enough time getting hold of it. Good night, Phil. Well, by the time I got back to my apartment on Franklin, the sky was beginning to fill with a soft gray of morning. I pulled the blinds down in my bedroom and sat down for a last cigarette. I'd mixed with a lot of funny people that day. But for some cock-eyed reason, I kept thinking of Benita Malone, a girl who was no better than she had to be. Finally, I put her out of my mind, and I was about to turn off the desk lamp when... I noticed my memo pad still read Sunday, which was understandable. But scrawled across the top sheet was a telephone number. And I couldn't figure how it got there. It was written in crimson lipstick. Bradshaw Seven, Seven <laughs> Eleven.
3: The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman McDonald. Featured in tonight's cast were Gloria Blondell, John Boehner, Jack Moyles, and Ben Wright. Detective Lieutenant Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard O'Rant. Be sure to be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says...
2: They were all after it. An importer, a beautiful woman, a nut, and a guy I couldn't figure out. But before we were through, one was in the hospital, two were in the morgue, and the fourth was waiting for the hangman. All that because of a blue burgonet, Something I'd never even heard of before. <laughs>
3: Doctor Fabian, the ship's doctor in cabin B thirteen, tells a new story of danger in far ports tonight over most of the CBS network stations. Tonight's story, The Island of Coffins, is another original drama by John Dixon Carr, famed mystery writer. You can hear it when the ship's whistles sound outside cabin B thirteen.